And as you do, take your seats, uh, take your Bibles. Turning God's holy word to Hebrews 6. We'll continue where we stopped last week, looking at those first several verses. We'll read 1 through 12 this morning as we have the last two. And we'll be looking specifically this morning at 4 through 6 and uh, with, with some reference to 7 and, and 8. Hebrews 6. Let's read. Follow along as I read out loud. Therefore, therefore, because we've been called to maturity and out of immaturity, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the, same, to have the full assurance of hope unto the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God endures forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is pure. It is perfect. It is good for us. We ask that you would take it now and, and bless our souls with it. Father, if we need rebuking, rebuke us. If we need correcting, where we need correcting, correct us. Father, for those of us in need of encouragement, encourage us. Instruct us all now with your wonderful word. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The title is taken from a book of the 17th century, The Almost Christian Discovered. And I think you probably get the gist of the book. It's a book that leads people through examining themselves as Paul exhorts the Corinthians, examine yourself that you be found in the faith. And... Uh, 
And the author points out how, how sad it is and how uh, rather frequent it is that those who claim to be Christians may not, may not may make the final cut, as we often say. Uh, they may not truly be Christians. Um, Peter, make sure of your election and calling. And so this is something that we as Christians are called to do. And remember, Peter and Paul wrote both of those instructions. Make sure of your calling. Uh, and be sure that you're found in the faith. Both of those are written to the church. Not to the world, but to the church. So it's a call for the church always to be examining themselves. Never to grow complacent. Never to, never to take for granted that indeed they're Christians. Now that doesn't mean that you can't have assurance of faith. It simply means that you, you're constantly looking at your life in the mirror of God's holy word. This is a passage, as a number of commentators point out, that's, a, that's about apostasy. It's a warning to those who might be drifting toward apostasy. What does it mean to be apostate? Well, if you've read much Christian literature at all of the non-fiction kind, which is the best kind, of course, uh, you've, you've come across that word, apostate, and you know it's not a, not a good word. It's not something you want to aspire to. It's, uh, it's a bad word. It's a word of warning. It's a word of danger. In the, uh, as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking of something I say from time to time, and I had to explain it to my, my children many years ago when I would say this to them uh, because they had no context for it. Some of you do have the context for it, and others will not. So parents, you may want to say more about this to your children later. But in the 60s, there was a television show. It was one of these outer space shows, one of those early sci-fi made for prime time family viewing. It's called Lost in Space. And there was a young boy on there. His name was Will Robinson. And Will Robinson had a surrogate guardian, his, uh, his robot friend. And uh, whenever Will was in danger, forgetting something, he'd been told, don't go around those rocks over there. We don't know what kind of beings are out there. Or you don't go play there. The robot would say, danger, Will Robinson. Because it was a reminder to him that he was forgetting something that he had been told. Or he was about to enter into an area that he didn't need to enter into. It was a danger zone. And that's what this passage is about. It's a, it's a danger, Will Robinson. This book is full of these beware to the Christians. We've already seen them. We didn't look at them uh, uh, specifically. We, 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 we talked about them in their context back in chapter 3, chapter 4. But now, as William Hendrickson says, now in one lengthy sentence, he's referring to verses 4 through 6 in our English Bibles. Now in one lengthy sentence, he develops that teaching of danger, danger of apostasy, danger of falling away, he, he develops that teaching in greater detail. The emphasis in this passage, in this paragraph, beginning in verse 
1 and working through verse 8, the, the emphasis is on verse 6 and the main verb there, uh, to restore them again to repentance. So that's, that's like the focal point of this, this paragraph is the, it's impossible to restore someone if they're an apostate. And so we have to ask then, okay, so then that sounds pretty dangerous that someone could fall to the point that they're, they're beyond hope, they're beyond help in this life and the life to come. And it is a dangerous place. And so the author takes up this theme of apostasy. He does it again. We'll encounter this again in chapter 10, verse 26 and following, and chapter 12, verses 55 and following. So it's, uh, we've already seen it in chapter 3, chapter 4, now in chapter 6, and it'll come back again two more times. So you get a point that in this, in this book, and if, if, if scholarship's right, uh, most consider this to have been a, a, a sermon. I mentioned this way back in chapter 1, uh, and some of you have been reading it, no doubt. Maybe you've read it several times since we embarked upon it a few months ago, and you're thinking, wow, that was a long sermon. And uh, we don't know if it was preached in segments or if it was all at one setting. But you get the idea that this preacher is concerned for his hearers that they not only know the truth, but they own the truth. And so these warnings come at strategic points that people are forced to reckon with this. Have I owned this? Is this what I really, not, not just here, and I can say, yeah, I know that, and I believe that. And isn't that always sad? Parents, maybe you've encountered this with a child or children with parents, and you're, you're, you're concerned for them, and you say, but don't you, even, don't you even believe? And I remember at one point a, a friend of mine telling me that he had, he had grown up in a godly Christian home, covenant home, Faithful parents, if I named the name, many of you here would be familiar with the, the family name. And he said he had just fallen into rebellion. And one day his father in exasperation said, Son, don't, don't you even believe in God? And he said, Yes, Father. In, in my most satanic voice, he said. And he said, You know, after that, shortly after that I realized that I was living very close to this edge of taking for granted, of playing with the Christian faith, of playing with the Christian doctrine, not really taking it seriously, not really owning it. It had no life-changing effect upon me. And we all need to look in the mirror of the scriptures from time to time, be sure that we're not just playing with these truths. And so let's, let's look at this. For a few moments. Now remember, this has come on the hills, this, this high, hard admonition has come on the hills of the warning in chapters 5, 11 through uh, 14, the warning that we're not to remain children, we're to move on, we're to be mature, we're to go, we're to be, we should be seen, as John points out in his epistle, we're to be seen as moving from childhood to young adulthood to, 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 to young manhood to, to the fatherhood, to the adulthood in the Christian life. There should be seen in our lives that kind of spiritual progress. 
And so it's not surprising then that on the hills of him warning them to move on to maturity, this very direct, pointed warning comes. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who wrote one of the very fine commentaries on on the epistle, says this, It's apparent, therefore, that his concern is not simply lest his readers should remain at a standstill on the threshold of the Christian life, immature and unfruitful in the faith they profess. But he's concerned about something far worse, lest there should be a relapse into unbelief in their midst. The danger of apostasy, it must be emphasized, is real, not imaginary. Otherwise, this epistle, with its high-sounding admonitions, must be dismissed as trifling, worthless, and ridiculous. He is addressing readers whose loss of confidence and whose flagging will to persevere in the Christian race point alarmingly to the possibility of their dropping out of the contest altogether, and in doing so, of placing themselves beyond all hope of restoration. Now, we all then should pause and say, okay, I need to really consider this passage. Am I being addressed? Well, A, the answer is yes. We're all being addressed by this passage. And we need to be careful not ever to look at a verse of Scripture and say, well, that's about him. Well, that's about her. Now, we may recognize it in someone else. But we don't need to then dismiss it simply as being about someone else. So we recognize this. We look at this. We consider ourselves in this. There's, there's a little key I want you to keep in mind as we look at these, as the characteristics unfold here. But a little key that I want you to keep in your mind because I, I don't want anyone leaving this morning because this is going to be extended to next week. I want anyone leaving here this morning saying, well, you know what, uh, I fall into sin all the time. I guess I'm beyond being restored. Now this, pay attention, this is not about falling into sin. It's about falling away. We all fall into sin. John says it, doesn't he, in 1 John. He says we've all sinned. And if we say we're not sinners, now here he's talking to the church again. He says if, if we say we're not sinners, then we're liars and the truth is not in us. So this passage is not about people who, who from time to time, day to day, fall into a sin. This is about people who just simply fall away. What John says in 1 John 2, they've gone out from us because they were never really part of us. So you get the idea that what John's talking about there, what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about here, people who've, who've lived in our midst as Christians, who have who have who've carried their Bibles around, who have their Bibles all marked up, who have a stack of books they've read, and then one day they just simply say, you know, I don't want anything to do with this. They don't fall into sin. They fall completely away. And these people are characterized here in this passage. Let's look at it. Uh, two points, the characteristics of an apostate 
uh, person, or at least the characteristics of one leaning toward apostasy, and then second, the warning against apostasy that I want us to see. All right, as you can tell already in this introduction, here we are 10 minutes in. That's a lengthy introduction. I'm not usually that long. But it's important that we understand this passage because this, this is a hard one. Frankly, I want you to know this is a hard passage to preach, not just because of the structure of the passage, but because of the content of the passage. It's a whole lot easier to preach Jesus loves you than it is you may be falling away from Christ. So listen closely as the characteristics are set forth here. He says, for it is impossible. Now that's that word, uh, it's beyond your ability. So if, if someone falls beyond the point of repentance, as we'll, we'll deal with that next week in detail. But, but he's saying it, there is, there's nothing in your power to recover yourself. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. Well, now that's all of, all of us who are Christians have once been enlightened. We're, that's required in order for us to understand the gospel, in order for us to come to faith, believing in Christ, we have to be enlightened. Well, what does it mean to be enlightened? That's the question. And here you get a couple of, a couple of primary opinions. I'm going to give you both. I'm going to tell you which one I think is right. And that's the one that's right. Uh, one is that this is a reference to baptism. From the early time, Justin Martyr in the early church took this as baptism. Countless men since have understood the Enlightenment as baptism. The church has often spoken as, of baptism as, as that first enlightenment that comes to a person. That God, God implants the seed of enlightenment through baptism. And much stress for those who hold that view is, is placed on uh, the word once there. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. And so they draw a line to, to Ephesians chapter 4 and talk about that one, bapti one baptism. We're to be baptized but once. And that's a proper baptism, a valid baptism, but once only. So that's some. And then they move on through and they, they take this as a sort of a liturgical unfolding. If enlightened means baptism, then tasted the heavenly gift would be the Lord's Supper. And on through they go. Now, personally, I'm not convinced by that. Uh, I, I, it seems here that enlightenment means something else. And in the New Testament, it often does mean something else. And we see... For instance, in Hebrews 10, 32, and uh, I, I, I think it's always good to look at the most immediate context to see how the author is using terms, uh, but beyond that as well. But he says uh, in verse 26, first, for if we go on sinning, by the way, this is in one of those contexts of a, the next warning series that he gives, if we go on sinning deliberately, willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins dot 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 verse 32 but recall the former days when after you were enlightened 
you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, etc. Uh, the, the, the antecedent to enlightened in verse 32 is the receiving of knowledge, the knowledge of truth in verse 26 is what I want you to see. And so this enlightenment, I take it, in, in Hebrews 6, verse 4, this ha having once been enlightened is once you know the truth, once you've been taught the truth, once you've heard the truth taught and preached, to turn your back on it is a fearful thing. It's a thing God doesn't take lightly. I mean, think about this, folks. Dads, you've had this happen. If you're a supervisor in the workplace, if you're a dad at home, moms, you've had it happen too. But you say something, you speak. And the person to whom you speak, they look at you and they kind of nod like, yeah, you're an idiot. And they turn around and they just go on to do their own thing. You don't take that lightly, do you? It may bother you emotionally, but more so it's, it shows you that they don't really care. They don't really respect my voice. They don't respect my authority. They don't respect my... And, and see, that's what's happening here. People who have listened to God speak and then say, hmm, they just shrug the shoulder and walk on. Some of you sadly have, have loved ones like that. They've heard the truth. And they say, like the psalmist said they would say, no God for me. But they've, they've had the knowledge of truth spoken in their presence, in their ears. Second characteristic of one that's, that's on the verge of, leaning toward, perhaps fallen into apostasy is not only having once been enlightened, but have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, you, you already know that I don't think that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Uh, but you will find that in some authors, just so you know. But there are a number of, uh, a number of people and a number of, uh, number, of, uh, number of references to gifts of God in the scriptures. If you've professed faith in Christ and united with the faithful church, you've tasted the heavenly gift when you partook of the Lord's Supper. Now that's truth. I don't think that's, that's the primary thing that the author has in view here. But it is true. <clears throat> and that may be the case for some. I've taken the Lord's Supper and, you know, I can take it or leave it. Christ Jesus is also referred to as, a, as the living water. And he said to the woman at the well in John 10 or John 4:10 that I am that gift. I'm that gift you need. I'm the water that you need. John 3:16, a passage I hope everyone here has tucked away in their memory and use it often. For God so loved the world, He gave, He gifted His only begotten Son. Jesus Christ is, is a gift. Jesus said to the people in John 6 that you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, speaking spiritually, He went on to say, unless you've tasted the good heavenly gift, 
The Holy Spirit's referred to as a gift of God, Acts 2.38, 8.20, and 10.45. And maybe it's, maybe it's including as well the wonderful communion of the saints that is a gift to all of us. And so he's, he's saying, if you've, you've tasted, you've been enlightened, you've had the word preached and taught to you, you know what the truth is, you have a knowledge of the truth, and you've tasted the heavenly gift. And I take that specifically to be a reference to teaching on Christ, his person and work. It may include all those benefits that, that are attached to Christ Jesus that I just spoke of. And you've shared in the Holy Spirit that's another characteristic. Someone who is shared in the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Because a lot of this does sound like it's someone who's, 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 who's been a Christian. And back to the book, The Almost Christian Discovered, all those people that that author writes about are men and women who, who were frequenters to the church of God, who were faithful at times to the attendance of worship. I mean, you don't find almost Christians out there, do you? I was talking to someone this morning. You know, someone who's clearly not a Christian, they don't bother with this. The almost Christian will be discovered in the context of the church. That's the reason the author is writing to the church these words. He says, you've, you've shared in the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? Well, he... Well, I think it's a reference back to chapter 2. Again, verse 4. He says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. See, the church, when you see someone, if you've been a member of this church long, you've seen us bring up children to be baptized. You've seen us bring children before us who've been through the communicants class and they declare their faith in Jesus Christ. You've seen the work of the Holy Spirit. You've shared in, you've, you've shared the witness, you've testified, you could testify to the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe not in your own life, but in the life of others. And to see that, and to see the Holy Spirit at work in your midst, and then Turn your back on it. It's a fearful place to be. To see the power of God at work in our midst and be indifferent. That's what the warning is about here. And then he goes on and says, and have tasted, another characteristic, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. So it begins... It's, it's like he begins with, you have the knowledge and you've tasted it. And isn't that exactly how the Bible describes the Word of God? We're to taste it. We're to eat it. We're to consume it, in other words. And so the psalmist says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Again, that's Psalm 119, 103. Again, back in Psalm 19, 10. More to be desired are they, the law of God, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
Is God's word so tasty to you that you want more and more? Or is a little bit enough? That's the, that's the question here. A little bit's a taste, isn't it? There's a cola down in Peru called Inca Cola. Some of y'all travel, you know, when you get on that, that plane, when you're first in the country, you get on the plane to go to another city, they proudly bring out the Inca Cola. And I tasted and it was not good. So I didn't drink any more of it. I can do without it. I can live without Inca Cola. But when you taste the Word of God and you can live without it, then you're in a danger zone. When it doesn't, it doesn't draw your attention. Notice what he couples there with this, this danger call. He says, tasted the word of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Why does he couple those? And it's in the Greek, just here, as in the English here, those are meant to be a couplet. They're meant to hang together. Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Because think about it. The powers of the age to come how have they been, how do we know about them? Through the goodness of the Word of God. The power part. You see this all through the Bible, don't you? God spoke by His Word. And it all came into existence. It's God who speaks through the preacher through your friend speaking the words of the gospel. How does faith come? Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word. Those kind of, those are heavenly powers at work in us. As Gerhardus Voss says, it's, it's, it's heaven intruding upon this world. The power of the age to come comes into this world through the Word of God. Not through a flying saucer or not through, you know, through the Word of God. That's why he links them here. It's because the goodness of the Word, we taste it, and then the powers of the age to come come to bear upon us. I mean, salvation is, is the power of the age to come. Why does Paul say to the Ephesians that the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in each of us now? Not, not later, but now. That's the eight power of the age to come is at work in us. Same power that will raise us from the grave on that day in the day of judgment is at work in us right now. The powers of the age to come. In principle, Philip Hughes says, we are able to experience in the present age the powers that belong to the future age. Isn't that remarkable? In principle, we are able to experience the powers that belong to a future age in the present age. When the coming age dawns, we shall fully realize the supernatural powers we now are allowed to observe. That's the already not yet. 
we're already enjoying them, but when Christ comes again, we'll enjoy them even fuller and we'll see them and know them and understand them even better. But in the meantime, we taste the goodness of God's word and we receive it and these powers come to work in us. But if we taste and we're not interested, then notice what happens, what the threat is. It's a legitimate threat. And then, verse 6 says, and then, if, if, if you're characterized by this, and then fallen away, go back to verse 4, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying, once again, the Son of God. So the warning is, it's impossible to be restored if you, are, if you have fallen away. Now remember what I said in the beginning, flag here. It's not falling into sin that you repent of and, and, and find yourself back in fellowship with Christ, back in fellowship with the church of the living God, back enjoying the sacraments, back enjoying the worship. It's not falling into sin, it's falling away. It's the going out from us because they were never really part of us. Peter describes it in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 20, and, uh, 20 through 22, as a dog returning to its vomit. He described it earlier in that chapter as a cloud without water in it. In other words, you have the appearance of being a Christian, but you're not. Because the word, you're disinterested. The Spirit, you see the work of the Spirit around you and other people, but eh. You study about Christ, you study about the Spirit, and well, you know, that's good for some professional to sit and do, but not me. You've been enlightened. The Word of God, you're just not thrilled by it. That, the warning is, if you find yourself like that, you're in a dangerous place. We see this illustrated in John chapter 6. I'll just have you go back there. Start reading about verse 55 or so and read through verse 66. That's that episode where Jesus, after he's walked on the water and he's fed thousands and, and he's, he's had this engagement with the Jews and he said, you know, you're not following me because of what I've done. Yeah, because of what the Spirit's done through me, because of who I am, because of what you've learned from me, the knowledge of truth. You're following me because, I, because you got bread, because I fed you. And then he goes on and he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 36, uh, 66 says, and from that day forward, Many who had followed him went away from him to not follow again. And the force of the Greek there is they went away forever. They fell away. They didn't fall into sin. They didn't say, well, you know, that's tough. I'm struggling with that. And they go over here and they study it a little bit and say, oh, I got it. The Spirit's helped me understand this. And they're back in there with Christ. No, this is not these people. 
Those people in verse 66 said, uh, I've heard the knowledge of truth. I've, I've, I've tasted the gift. I've, I've shared in the Spirit's work. I've seen all this supernatural stuff. I've heard the Word of God preached. I've, 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 I've even witnessed the powers of the age. I mean, if anyone did, the people in the days of Christ did, right? Watching Him do these great things. And then they walked away. That's who the warning's to. Next week we'll, we'll unfold a little more of this. But just one last thing. You notice verse 7 and 8. For the land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. See, all these same things, the preaching God's word, the knowledge of, of truth, the spirit, Christ, the word, all those things were being brought upon the same people. And for some people it produced blessings, faith, repentance. And for others, it produced thorns and thistles. In other words, it produced ungodliness. They turned their backs on it. The Isaiah passage tells us that very same thing, doesn't it? This has always been the case. It helps us, doesn't it? I mean, some of you are sitting here and you're saying, you know, that helps explain so-and-so who was here for 15 years, 20 years, you know, toted a big old Bible. Doesn't make, us, doesn't make it easier in the sense of accepting it, but it makes it easier for us to understand what happens because it leaves you shaking your head sometimes, doesn't it? How could they just leave us? How could they walk away? They didn't just leave us, the church. They left God. They're living out there. They don't care. And the, the danger for us is to point the finger and think about them when, as I said in the beginning, we, just, we need to just bring ourselves back to this mirror and examine ourselves to be sure that we've been found in the faith that we love the knowledge of truth, that we love the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we love the work of the Holy Spirit, that we love the tasting, studying the goodness of God's Word and enjoying the goodness and the greatness of the power of the age to come. That's where we have to be. Demas... Paul wrote, in love with this present world has deserted me. He's fallen away. And of course, Judas is another good example of one falling away, isn't it? Peter fell into sin, but he repented. Judas fell away. And the end destroyed himself. We have the promise that today, we've already seen it in this very epistle, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. We're not promised tomorrow, folks. We're not promised by this passage that there will be repentance tomorrow. But we are promised that today there is salvation for those who love Christ and love his word and love his church. May we all be found among those.
Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. Take it and, and comb through our very souls, Lord, so that we might know who we are in Christ and rejoice. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. 508, Jesus, lover of my soul.